It is about the perspectives of people who are traditionally excluded from research. How can they have more agency or play a bigger role in telling their part of the story? I often share this West African proverb, which says, until the lion has his or her own storyteller, the hunter will always have the best part of the story. And so when I'm doing emancipatory research, I'm trying to figure out, okay, what's the lion's story? Welcome to another episode of Design Lab. I'm your host, Bond Ku. This week, we have an amazing guest. Her name is Leslie Ann Noel. She's a professor of design thinking. We had such a great conversation. I appreciate everyone who has reached out to me personally and given me their encouragement. Gail Tan, who's listening in Singapore, tells me she's constantly inspired by the speakers to take a different lens to how she approaches her UX writing work. And Mary Brown from Michigan told me she loved episode two with Nzinga Harrison. In that episode, Nzinga and I talk about the stigma around mental health. Your comments are like a shot of caffeine. They keep me going. Please support Design Lab by rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. Or you can drop me a line, email me, bon at designlabpod.com. My guest, Leslie Ann Noel, is a professor of design thinking. Her expertise is in developing design curriculum for non-traditional audiences. Her work has been exhibited all over the planet, in Trinidad, Tobago, Jamaica, Brazil, Germany, and France. Leslie is originally from Trinidad, but she studied industrial design in Brazil. Leslie is a former Fulbright scholar, and she earned her PhD in design at North Carolina State University. Her research practice is guided by emancipatory philosophy. If you don't know what that is, stay tuned. You're going to find out. Leslie and I talk about how designers conduct research, how data can be biased, the visual nature of her work, and the challenges of being a black female designer. Here's my conversation with Leslie Ann Noel. Leslie Ann Noel, thanks for joining me on Design Lab. Thanks for the invitation, Bonku. Now, if someone asks you what you do for a living, how do you respond to that? It's actually always been hard. It's it's a little easier now because I can tell people I'm a teacher or I can mm. tell people I'm a professor because I work at a university. I'm, I'm a designer uh-huh. and I drop all adjectives. Sometimes I say I'm a product designer. Sometimes I say I'm a professor of design thinking. Now I work in academia, but I worked for about 10 years as a product designer, just doing consulting work. And I could actually never explain to people what I was doing back then, but I was listening to concerns of manufacturers and designing products to suit those those concerns. Wow. So you were practicing 10 years before entering into academia. I, yeah, because I was an adjunct. I was an adjunct in academia okay. for a long time. And then, of course, you can't live as an adjunct. So I was working as a design consultant on the side. And I did a lot of projects in industrial development, those kinds of design projects where I spent six months in Uganda working with a women's organization, introducing product design and other IT type of skills to women. In the Caribbean, I did a lot of design projects like that as Mm. well. 
I, I really kind of did a little bit of everything because when I was at school, I was trained to make myself relevant. Hmm. So I found this way of just being able to tell people, okay, yes, you need design and you need me. <laughs> you know, I'm the <laughs> designer you need. And now you are a professor at Tulane University teaching design thinking. I saw that you are part of a grant from the Patient Center Outcomes Research Institute, otherwise known as PCORI, and it's a grant around using design around public health during COVID-19. Is that right? Yeah, that is a really, really exciting project with my friend Alessandra Bassano, who's in public health. Alessandra already had an understanding of design thinking. So what we're doing is we're taking different design methods, I guess we'll call them design research methods, and trying to see how we can use these methods and particularly how can we use them remotely to understand how have people changed their behavior because of COVID, Mm. as well as what are people doing to keep themselves safe and sane, you know, during the pandemic. So in doing our research last time, we were talking about, I guess we kind of expected people to talk about women and the kind of work that women have had to do during COVID. Mm. But, you know, it turned into just a very, very rich discussion, which started from a photograph you know, and it was the photograph that led people to talk about their routines, which led people, led us to understand that people are actually not even dealing with their own children. They're dealing maybe with grandchildren. And so like from the patient-centered research part of it, it just starts to tell us, oh, here are some things that we're going to have to take care of in the future, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I love that you're focusing on women because they are the guardians of health and households. The man doesn't do much. You know, we're just like, whatever. But the woman (laughs) is one who usually is in charge of the health care of their household. And so you get a lot of insight that way. And the, the woman that you're working with is a public health researcher. Is that right? Yes. Yes. She's in the School of Public Health at at Tulane. I love when public health researchers can work with designers. That is, wow, that's so cool. There's not that many collaborations like that are actually funded through the PCORI, the Patient Center Outcomes Research Institute. So that is fantastic. And for those listening, some people, and especially folks in the medical community like myself, may not understand what design research is. And research often means a randomized controlled trial that's double-minded, placebo. And how would you explain to uh, folks who are doctors what design research is? I don't even know if I can explain to designers <laughs> what design research is. But, uh, or maybe how it's different. I'm thinking a doctor, I'm going to guess, and then maybe you could help me. A doctor uh-huh. might be able to recognize how I know that... I've been told that doctors make small talk. I don't know if all doctors do this, but like at the start of a visit, they make a little bit of small talk with the patient, which might be where they, they're trying to capture some information, maybe. Uh, and, yeah, and so a doctor yeah. might recognize that technique that we were also using with the photograph could be a little bit of small talk to yeah, get it's, us to it's, talk about stuff. It's like a tool to open up that yeah. narrative from a person, a human without it being so threatening. 
Yes. yes. And actually, so you use a good word there, narrative. And we talk about that a lot in design, you know, narrative and storytelling. And, and maybe that's also something that's really different in both the way we do the research and the way the, that we present the research, you know, where we're trying to create a story around it. Mm. And it's so, so important. And, and I've been doing that a lot during COVID of trying to understand people's risk of exposure to COVID. And, you know, some of the patients I treat don't have a home. And mm-hmm. so I try to ask in a non-threatening way, their exposure to go, Hey, you know, you know, who do you live with at home? Has anyone been affected with COVID? And instead of kind of going, who do you live with at home? Like who's in your household and what's your home situation like? Cause it's really hard when you frame it that way, as opposed to go, Hey, I just want to know, like, have you been around people with COVID at, at your home? Yes. And it's kind of like this tool, maybe a photograph that I use to draw yeah. out some of these stories that may not be as uh, threatening as kind of just directly asking. You talk a lot about emanci- emancipatory design. Emanci- yeah, I can't say emancipatory. <laughs> Gosh, how do you say that? Emancipatory design. You Perfect. talked about you got emancipatory it. <laughs> design. Yeah. What is that? I I talk about it in different ways. Let me think of how I want to talk about it today. It is work around power and it is work around perspectives. So one way to talk about it is that it, it would be doing the research with the participants from their perspective. So, so like I said, I talk about it in different ways on different days. That's what I want to use today, uh-huh. where like even this project that we're working on is emancipatory because we are trying to get residents of Louisiana, you know, residents of New Orleans to tell us what research they think is important. Mm-hmm. So we're shifting power to them, you know, rather than the funding agency saying, hey, this is the research that we want you to do. We're shifting the power to them and then letting them tell us this is the research that we want to do. Another way that I could describe it is that the disability movement had a slogan, I believe in the 90s, which says, not about us without us. Mm-hmm. And that's what you I could think that. of the emancipatory work as. So it is by the people from their perspective. And I often also then say it is about the perspectives of people who are traditionally excluded from research. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're looking at the people who, who would normally not get to say, well, okay, this is what's important for us in this pandemic, you know, who are the people who would be completely ignored? And that's the research perspective that I am normally interested in when I'm doing emancipatory research. I'm looking Mm. at who is left out, and then I'm trying to figure out how can they have more agency or play a bigger role in telling their part of the story. Mm. And then the last little description is I often share this West African proverb, which says, until the lion has his or her own storyteller, the hunter will always have the best part of the story. And so when I'm doing emancipatory research, I'm trying to figure out, okay, what's the lion's story? How can we get the lion to tell their story? Or how can we work with the lion to, to cre- bring in these other perspectives into the work that we do? Mm. That's so important because there's assumption that 
data is not biased, but data is totally biased because we have to question where did that data set come from? And has that data set excluded certain populations, certain groups? And often it does. Like data is biased. We need to take a step back and think about who is not being included in that data set. Definitely. I do talk all the time about positionality, where the data is biased because we have biases, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, we have to think of who is creating the data sets and we have to learn to ask these questions, you know? So like, even if I do research, now I'm not trying to do research that, I'm say is, is, that I say is objective, but if I'm doing research, the reality is that I am a woman of color I'm a non-American, you know, so I'm going to come into the research with a certain perspective that is going to affect the way that the work is viewed. And, you know, the person who's reading this work should understand, okay, this is this lady's perspective, right? And and I'm coming in as a woman. Mm -hmm. And then it's the same then. If, if people can understand that for me, you know, as a woman, as a person of color, then they should also be able to see it then for like a white man or a white woman that even though they might think that the data is unbiased, they're still going to be coming in with their own perspectives that are informed by their worldview, where they grew up, the languages that they speak, (laughs) you know, it's informed by a lot of things. So those biases affect the questions that we ask the ways that we collect the data. And mm. so it helps us to see how our positionality affects our work in that way. Yeah, it's understanding who you are as a person can make you a better researcher because you understand maybe some biases that you may bring in. And yes. so I, I would love to do that exercise for myself. And in your work, you seem like you try to bring design education more relevant to underrepresented populations. Is that correct? Yeah, that would be a nice way of describing it. <laughs> but yes, definitely. Um, trying to bring design or maybe separating design from that world of the Bauhaus and Ulm and, you know, I'm trying to make design make sense to ordinary people. Mm. So I I often move in between teaching people who are like studying design and then working with people, whether teaching or doing community work with people who would not call themselves designers. So, Mm. you know, I'm always in this kind of switching mode. And in doing that work, it means that I've had to like, learn to de-jargonize <laughs> the work that I'm doing. So I'm trying to not use some of the, I, I sometimes do it, but I am consciously trying to not use design jargon. Yeah. Cause it's just like this temple of design that is like inaccessible to those outside of that design community. And it can be a little bit intimidating entering yeah. into that or it's not relevant if you haven't, um, had that exposure. Yeah. So, right. So I'm trying to not talk about that, or at least to try to talk about that world of design that's outside of what people know in a non-threatening way. Mm. My thesis was actually about doing design. So I I created a, a design class or a design camp 
for children in a very, very rural part of Trinidad. And it's actually a design class. The, the class that we did is based on an industrial design, like a, a regular industrial design kind of a class. But I just spoke about design in a way that I made it very relatable for the children. Mm. So like, for example, when we talked about, I guess, what design is, I never once, we talked about design thinking. Uh-huh. No, actually, I don't even think I use the term design thinking. I remember when I was planning for the research, someone asked me, well, are you going to show these people the design thinking model? Uh-huh. When, when actually, I mean, okay, I, I don't even believe there's one you know, model to show people, but I never did show people at Mm. all. I asked them, you know, I described what we were doing and then I asked the students to, to then create a drawing for me that shows me what their thinking process was, Mm. you know? And then at the end of the week, they had to go back and look at their design process that they had created and critique the process that they had created to see if they wanted to use it in the following week. And so that's how these kids learn to talk about design, you know, through thinking about their design process. It was an exciting experience, you know? And then the other thing that we did- So you went there to Trinidad and taught these students who were in elementary school or middle school? Yeah, fourth grade. So elementary school. Fourth grade. Yes, yes. Whoa. It was very cool, very tiring. I was like- beaten up at the end of each day. I just thought, how do these teachers do this? I know. Um, how did, how did you choose Trinidad? Well, I'm from community? Trinidad. Oh, <laughs> yes, okay. I'm Trinidadian. And oh. I actually knew the, the principal of that school. Okay. I used to teach at an art school in Trinidad. Okay. And so the principal of that school was really interesting because he's he might have been a social studies teacher, but he was also an artist. So he understood the importance of creative education. So I asked him, can I do this at your school? And he said, sure, talk to the school board and and do it. It was an exciting three weeks. And then, uh, you know, one week we we were talking about what do designers do? Mm -hmm. We had all of these philosophical questions, conversations, even though they were just kids. And after we, we understood already what this process was, and I said, well, so who are the people in your communities who are designers? And the children said, well, okay, the welder is a designer because the welder is listening to what people need. And then he's going and he's making those burglar bars that he puts on people's window. And I was like, actually, yes. Right. And then the other child says, and the nail technician is a designer because she knows that you want something pretty. And then she does these pretty drawings on your fingernails and and then she's also using all of these fancy chemicals and all that. And so like, yeah. And then the hairdresser's the designer because she knows that, you know, and so we didn't have to talk about any of those like very, very lofty discussions about design. And these children had a really clear understanding of what design is and what design could be, you know, yeah. because the other things that they did, like, they had to look at their school and identify problems in their school that they wanted to to fix. Mm-hmm. And they said, we have a problem with mango trees in our school. And I'm like, what is the problem with the mango trees? <sighs> and then they said, well, the mango trees are too high and we cannot reach the mangoes. 
And there are rules. So even if we could reach the mangoes, we can't pick the mangoes, you know? And so it meant that we could then go into a brainstorming space where we're talking about They're rules. already putting their design constraints on that. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, they're like, okay, what are the, we could design new rules. And we can design objects to help us pick mangoes. Mm. Yeah, so that's one of the ways I've been trying to see how can I get people who are outside of design still active in the design process. So a lot of what I do, I suppose, is around facilitation, co-facilitation, mm. coaching people to tell them, you can do this. Yes, you can come up with a hundred ideas and, and stuff like that. Uh -huh. And yeah. And that's so different from other ways of teaching design in formal design education because you had mentioned this before like how do we do it here where we would teach them about Bauhaus and classical design can you explain what that is for people who don't know what design is so when you go to design college like a lot of the history that you learn will start at the Bauhaus, which was a school in Germany. I think it closed mm. just on the eve of the Second World War. Okay. But we, we tend to start or ground a lot of design history classes there, you know, at the Bauhaus in Germany or the Hochschule. <laughs> the, there's a school in Ulm. Uh -huh. which is another city in Germany that followed the Bauhaus. And that's where we tend to start the history, mm -hmm. right? Or maybe some schools will go a little bit before and they'll talk about the Beaux-Arts in France. Mm -hmm. But what that start in design education often does is it kind of just makes you think that this stuff, this world is so foreign to you and your mm. existence, or, you know, it's like what you do can't be good be unless it looks like that stuff that they did in Germany or Switzerland yeah. or, you know, and I, I taught in Trinidad for many years at the university there. And I, I was always trying to see how can we teach this stuff, this design sensibility in a yeah. way that doesn't give students this uh, like an inferiority complex yeah you know, where my students would think that the work had to look like it came from new york yeah for it to be good work mm. and it it doesn't you know the work has to respond to what the needs of the context were so I it, love it might that. not That's have any fascinating yeah, because I mean, otherwise <laughs> it would not have been relevant. There would have been these fourth graders in Trinidad, but why are we learning about this school in Germany that existed yeah. in the last century? And how is that <laughs> relevant to me? And I yeah. love this insight that they intuitively understood what design was and they actually defined it themselves. Like it's, oh, it's yeah. what the person at the hair salon does. That's actually design. And it is, yes. You're identifying a design problem with a mango tree. Yeah, here's a yeah. design challenge. Yeah, it is. So these days I read a lot of, I guess, decolonial thought. But, you, you know, when I was doing my PhD, I read a lot of Paulo Freire. And he was a Brazilian scholar, a Brazilian educator mm. who was teaching literacy in rural Brazil. And I think that Paulo Freire is really, really fundamental reading for a lot of us who are design educators because it's what we do 
can be situated knowledge. Okay. And we can make really, really, really good education by linking it to what students already know, what's going on around them, you know, really making the context very rich because that's what Freire was doing in Brazil, where he was making reading meaningful for the peasants in Brazil at the time, you know? And so I often, now I don't teach design history because it's not in the courses that I teach, mm. but it is something that I, I question. It's not that I question it completely, I suppose. I see how it could be useful, but, you know, because I'm really trying to create this situated knowledge, I don't refer to it, you know, because mm. I think that we can teach design in other ways that, that don't make them feel less than. I mean, I'm curious to know about your personal journey. Do you come from a family of designers? Is that how you got interested in design? You know, my parents debate this all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And no, they're not designers. Interestingly, my parents was, they're both alive, right? But I'm going to use like past tense because my parents both had like multiple careers. They were teachers. So maybe I got the teaching thing from them. They weren't teachers for their entire career. They were scientists, again, neither of them for their entire careers, but you know, so I think that maybe my curiosity came from that. My father is a musician. And so he says, well, okay, I'm creative, you're creative, maybe you got this from me. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I don't actually know where I got it from. I was, went to school with a really good art program at school. And so it meant that I entered an art stream and then design was part of that stream. I I liked the practical application of design, you know, and when I was like 19, I, I, I was horrible to my artist friends and I told them, I'm not here to be poor, right? So I'm going to be a designer. You people can be the struggling artists, but I'm going to be a designer because... <laughs> it was just really a, a horrible, arrogant place. But today I'm I'm really focused on, this will sound so cliche and stereotypical, but I'm really focused on like making the world better. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, so everything I do today has a strong social justice root. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I don't know if you know this. I mean, I've referred to Brazil a few times. I lived in Brazil for six years. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I I did undergrad in Brazil. So, I mean, I did industrial design, yes, but I did industrial design in a special place, Mm. right, which is in Brazil. And I think that I had then these social justice movements happening around me. And I think that has affected the way that I practice design today, even though that is like 25 years ago. I think, you know, if if we think again about our identities, Mm -hmm. in moving to Brazil, I was able to see my middle classness Mm -hmm. in a way that I might not have ever have been able to see it in Trinidad, Mm -hmm. you know? So when I kind of came out of that, I was able to see, oh, okay, here's a society where uh, I I could see people really striving for um, a better world Mm -hmm. in in a place, whereas in Trinidad, maybe in some context or in the world around me, people had already reached there. You know, like Mm -hmm. Trinidad had 
there was like a, a big move then from like my father talks about how when they were small everybody was poor you know mm. I mean, very very poor and then Trinidad had an oil boom and then you know independence and all that and people moved into the middle class kind of in droves mm. and that might have been before I was born but because I was in Brazil in the 90s I was able to see what I'll call in quotes, transformation and liberation mm. of life for many people, I guess, have made that part of the thing that drives me today. Mm. And now, and I'm kind of curious to know, what are some of the challenges that you may have faced or faced as a non-American Black woman designer in the U.S.? <laughs> we do have a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> I should have asked this up front, maybe. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's, it's not so terrible. I'll tell you something f- funny. I, or, or maybe, No, not even funny. I guess I am an outsider on many different levels. And actually, I've been able to use that outsider status to be able to tell people, hey, there are other ways of doing things. You know, okay, you think you're so hot, but you know, there are, you know, in other parts of the world, maybe people do things differently. And so while there are definitely challenges, I don't actually think the challenge that I have is from being a non-American so much. I mean, I have non-American issues, but really, as a black woman, it is sometimes difficult to mm. even be seen or to be heard. And I eventually reached a place where I just had to be kind of very public with the work that I was doing so mm. that I wasn't going to allow people who might be gatekeeping and they're mm. gatekeepers in a lot of different circles, right? Or different places. So it could be a gatekeeper at work, a gatekeeper in some some kind of professional organization, a gatekeeper in the PhD program, you know, and actually there weren't gatekeepers in my PhD program. So, so I should take that one out. There was a quote I heard recently where someone said, no one is coming to save you. Actually, mm. the, the Prime Minister of Barbados said that recently, and she says, mm. no one is coming to save us. And so I, I ended up having to say that. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to say the things that I want to see. And whoever, you know, in, in Trinidad, our expression is who vex loss, which means that whoever's angry because I've said the things that I want to say, it's, it's their problem. Mm. But I'm saying that also being very aware that this outsider status also creates problems, Mm. right? But in my mind, I live my life as if I have many options, right? Mm. So I'm like, you know what? I can say this because I am mid-career and I can, you know, I can be a a little bit bold in the things that I say. Mm. And someone else will want me if if someone gets upset with the way I've said something. (laughs) Do you, do you have advice for younger female black designers who are just entering into the field? Oh, so definitely be bold. Be very, very, very bold because we all have our own imposter syndrome and that imposter syndrome is going to eat us up. And then on top of our imposter syndrome, we have people who are just making life difficult for us just as black women or 
non-American black women from the Caribbean who lived in Brazil, you know, <laughs> you know so they're, they're people who are just going to make life difficult for us. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, you have to be bold. You have to build a big network, a supportive network, you know? So my advice is find your community, people who are going to tell you that your work is amazing, people who will be real with you as well, so that at least these people can validate you every now and again, because there'll be other people who won't validate you, right? And then another bit of advice I like to share, which I got from a Caribbean professor at Stanford, and he was like, if you're angry about something, take that anger and do something with it. Because we could sit in our anger and stew all day, And at the end of the time, we've gotten nothing out of it. You know, we got an ulcer because we were so angry or whatever. But, you know, he was like saying, yes, we're going to always operate in race circles and sexist circles. And people are always going to be cutting us off. And he was telling me to just, when people cut you off, write down what it is that they have lost because you didn't get the chance to finish your statement. And then he said, take that and turn it into a paper, turn it into work, turn it into, you know. And so for me, that was really good advice to lean into that anger and turn it into something productive. And I probably have produced some of my better work from that angry place, you know, that he he told me to rise above, right? And then, okay, one last um, thing is my professor in Brazil, one of my favorite professors, Evans Fontora, he said, make yourself relevant. So that's something that I learned to do. Like, you know, I referred to it earlier on where I just said, okay, I have to just convince people you need design and you need me. So, you know, even if you're not a designer, you're a young black professional, you have to learn to convince people that they need you. They need whatever you do. And you are the only person who can do that. Right. And so, yeah, that's some recent advice I would share with people. That's some great advice. I can be generalizable to so many other different groups and it's, something that I could implement in my life. So thank you for that. We we like to give listeners some takeaway principles. So I think you summarized it right there, those three principles. So such such good advice there. Really oh oh my goodness, our time is up. Oh my yeah. <laughs> it was it was well, I so, could talk for hours. <laughs> it was so good having you on Design Lab. I really appreciate you joining us. I'm so happy for this invitation. Yeah. I've, re- I've been really looking forward to this chat with you. So thank you so much. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Yeah. Joining me now is the producer of Design Lab, Rob Puglisi. Rob and I used this time to geek out about what we just heard from the guest and to give you some takeaways from the conversation. Bon, I really loved that interview with you and Leslie. Leslie Ann Noel, she is a rock star. I am a huge fan of her work. I just love her approach to teaching design. It's so different. Mm-hmm. And it's really great kind of hearing her perspective as a design researcher, you know, what that really means. We, we try really hard to try to explain to traditional scientists what design is. You know, what, what was your takeaway from that? She reminds me of Ellen Lupton in her approach of making design accessible to everyday people outside of the design community. 
And her work is so inspiring in Trinidad where she basically got the kids to define design themselves. She yeah, didn't tell them what design or design thinking was. They just kind of figured out and said, hey, this is design. That what they do in the hair salon or the welder, they're doing design. Yeah, it was really great how she puts a lot of work into making design approachable. Right. And because it is it, it's something that is so universal. So there's no reason for it to be something that everyone, no matter where you come from or what your background is, can learn about and do and are doing. Right. Yeah, Like, you don't you don't have to learn about the Bauhaus in Germany in order to understand what design is or to become a designer. Yeah. Careful. Careful. You say that to Bond. The <laughs> Temple of Design Jedi might come get you. <laughs> She is just inspiring in her work, her approach. It's, it's very different from um, what I have seen out there. Yeah. I really loved her description of emancipatory research and this idea that you actively raise the voices and seek out the perspectives of people who are unheard to kind of always be trying to correct that power unbalance. It's so true. I see that in medicine a lot. There's a big power imbalance of the way that we approach our patients, the way we think about designing medical and health interventions for the public. And we're leaving a lot of communities out. And even during this pandemic right now, we see those groups of communities, people who live in black and brown communities who already had poor health outcomes they're having worse health outcomes during the pandemic. And we need to understand as researchers, as physicians, are the own biases that we may bring and just be able to recognize that. It's because of those biases that certain groups are getting disproportionately impacted during this pandemic. Yeah, and it was it's so inspiring hearing that she's doing this really high-level research with her PCORI work to try to improve care when she is so aware and so good at understanding the importance of bias and addressing that head-on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one more thing. We're really lucky to be educators and to have the ears of so many bright students and her takeaway message, I think, is is so universal for students and, and especially people who come from different backgrounds. And that was, you know, first and foremost, to be bold, to find your community of people, especially if they'll be real with you. Right. And taking that anger and doing something productive with it. And if people don't believe in you, believe in yourself and make yourself relevant. Mm. I mean, that's something I try to do every day. So my best work like hers comes from this point of anger and, and channeling that anger into creativity. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Leslie Ann Noel. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Please give feedback to the show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen. This is your way of supporting us. I'm your host, Bon Koo. Rob Pugliese produced this episode. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston. Cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.